0: podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson
1: and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth.
0: Hi everyone, welcome back to No Trash, Just Truth as we continue in our series, Sin-Filled Nation. Rose, have you ever felt like you were going around the same mountain you'd been around several times before and still you just never ever seem to learn your lesson?
1: You mean you still make the same mistakes or sin like a thousand other times and you think, when am I going to learn? Hasn't everybody? Well, we're just like the Israelites were.
0: They didn't learn their lesson either. They had this cycle of apostasy, which means abandoning the worship of God and practicing syncretism. Then God allows them to be conquered and oppressed by another nation. The People cry out to God for deliverance and God saves them from their oppressors through a judge. Over and over and over again this happens. But in today's account,
1: God changes things up a bit. So you want to start reading for us today? Sure. I'll read from Judges 6, 1 to 10. And it's a little long, so hang in there. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come up like locusts in numbers. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was bought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and bought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So instead of sending a rescuer right away this time,
0: God sends a prophet to lay the blame squarely at their feet by reminding them of their covenant with God and telling them that they had broken the covenant. Now, as you and I know, a covenant is more than just an agreement between two people In that day, a suzerain king would conquer a people group and make a covenant with them. The covenant structure was what the king said it would be. There was no bargaining here. This wasn't like an agreement that everybody, you know, tried to weigh out their side. It would go something like this. The king would say to the people that he conquered, you give me a tenth of your produce, you serve in my army, obey my rules, etc., and I'll take care of you. I'll protect you from outsiders and all that kind of stuff. So that gave them a sense of assurance. And the other rule with this covenant was, if you break the covenant, I will kill you. It sounds like what the mafia used to do. (laughs) Absolutely, it does. Yeah. Like a suzerain king, I never thought of that. That was common, and it had been since Abraham's time or before. So this was more than an agreement. Like I said, it gave the people assurance. God's covenant with his people is, you will be my people and I will be your God. And God gives visible, tangible signs with his covenants to remind his people of the covenant. In this
1: case, that sign was circumcision. Right. And more than 200 years before this, Joshua reminded the people of the covenant and performed the ceremony of circumcision on the men who hadn't been circumcised while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. That whole account's in the book of Joshua. Joshua. But that was a long time before Gideon's generation. We don't know how many Israelites were still following the rule for circumcision anymore. If they weren't, they didn't have that tangible reminder. Regardless, we can be sure that they knew when the prophet said they'd broken the covenant with God that it meant trouble. But what did they do, Chris? Nothing. Nothing at all.
0: God's just judgment should have been enough to bring them to sorrow and repentance. Then God sent the prophet, but they still didn't repent. In fact, they kind of seem like they're blaming God. You know, no one likes to be told that their trouble is their own making. Everybody from the time of Adam wants somebody else to be at fault when there's a problem. And that's where these people seem to be, because Gideon's response to the angel of the Lord, which here is a theophany, which means pre-incarnate Jesus, seems to say that. Let's read about his first interaction with Gideon. You want to read it?
1: Sure. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us? saying did not the lord bring us up from egypt but now the lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of midian chris sometimes the truth's the best medicine and you're right about that often it's not taken very well it's not by the words
0: that gideon uses he seems frustrated with god in seven years time israel's enemies have overtaken them to the point that they live in the mountains. Their crops are repeatedly stolen or destroyed at harvest time. They're basically starving. They had no sheep or ox to sacrifice, so the proper worship wasn't happening. They had no donkeys to ride to carry everything up into the mountains they were forced into. And what little wheat they do gather, they have to hide while they're threshing it, as Gideon's doing here in the wine press. So the chaff's not blowing away like it would on the, you know, threshing floor. Right. And all Gideon seems to recall from what he's been taught about God is that God did, quote unquote, wondrous things for his ancestors. And he wants to know why God isn't doing wondrous things for them now. Rose, this reeks so
1: much of the church today. Oh, it does. They were practicing syncretism. They were worshiping the God of the Amorites as well as the one true God, Yahweh. The people had started thinking of the one true God as what's called a national God who would take care of the big things for the nation. But they started living like the pagans and worshiped the pagan gods, little G, and trusted those gods with the everyday things, like fertility, crops, and things like that.
0: Yeah, and Christians fall into the same trap. You know, they add their own good works or moral behavior to their hope of salvation instead of relying on Jesus' death on the cross. They practice pagan things, as you and I see more and more, Yes, like positive thinking Eastern meditation, crystals, even witchcraft. You sent me a picture with pe- some women that said, uh, "witches is for Christ or something like that. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> I didn't either until you sent me the picture. They want to practice this pagan stuff with Christianity. We practice interfaith marriages or attend interfaith worship services or ceremonies. All these things are forms of syncretism. People think that all these things can be mixed together because they're in some
1: way spiritual, but that is not what God's word says at all. No. And it happens often because people don't know the truth. They don't know what the Bible says. Thus, why we bend people's ear, know your Bible. (laughs) Absolutely. Or they've been lied to by false teachers. And again, they can be lied to because they don't know their Bible. One of the themes in Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The religious pluralism we see today in the church is exactly the same. The Israelites were instructed in God's law not to worship anyone but the one true God. Yet, for some reason, they were attracted to what they saw the Canaanites doing, so they did likewise. Yeah,
0: Gideon mentions the Israelites being led out of Egypt. Gideon and likely the rest of them want to see God perform some of those same types of wondrous acts they've been told about by their ancestors. They probably are wondering why the God who parted the Red Sea and made the wall of Jericho fall isn't wiping out their enemies now. But God will deliver them from their enemies' hands again, this time through Gideon himself. So let's read on. I'll read this time. Chapter 6, verses 14 to 18 says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out to you my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon prepares a meal and brings it out to the Lord, who tells him to place it on a rock, and then the Lord touches the food with his staff, and
1: it's consumed by fire. Gideon's story here parallels Moses in so many ways. Here's some of the ways that Dr. Miles Van Pelt of Reformed Theological Seminary points out the similarities. They both feel unqualified for the task. They're both promised, I will be with you. They're both given private signs of confirmation, a consuming fire that does not consume them. And later, we'll see that Gideon, like Moses, is given public signs of confirmation so that God's people know that God has called him.
0: Yeah, later that same night, the Lord says to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying down the stones carefully. Sacrifice a bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. So what
1: happens next, Rose? Well, the next morning when the people of town see what Gideon's done, they go to his father and demand that Gideon be killed. And his father says to the angry townspeople, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal is truly a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From that point on, Gideon is sometimes referred to as Jerubbabel, which means let Baal defend himself. I love that. I love what the father says. So Gideon got some
0: people pretty angry with him. And soon after that, Israel's enemies, the Midianites Amalekites, and others, cross over the Jordan River at harvest time and they camp in the fertile valley of Jezreel. They're back to wreak havoc once again. So keep in mind that their numbers are huge. Um, It says that they're like a swarm of locusts and these people are, are on camels and they're a strong fighting force. The Holy Spirit comes on Gideon and Judges 6, 34 and 35 says, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers through all of Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went out to meet them. Now, here's what we need to stop and think about the text in a bit. Because what happens next is Gideon's famous laying out the fleece. That laying out the fleece test that's been pretty wrongly handled by a lot of people. A lot of people have been taught, and I myself used to think this, that Gideon uses the fleece test because he has a lack of faith. But that would contradict him being mentioned in Hebrews 11's hall of faith. And from the two verses that I just read, we know two things. First, the Holy Spirit is residing on him. And second, he's called the army together already. That doesn't
1: sound like a lack of faith. No, it doesn't. Gideon doesn't lay out the fleece and ask, should I call the army? The army's already there, or at least the local part of it, and the rest are already summoned. So let's read on a bit. Gideon prays, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, as you've said, then behold, I will place a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all around the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to save Israel by my hand, as you've said. Next, he asks God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me just speak once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God does that too. Putting God to the test was a direct violation of Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 6.16 says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Yeah, it was and it still is against God's word to do that.
0: So here are a couple things to note about the fleece incident. Like you said, Gideon is not alone. And Gideon wasn't asking God what he should do. His words make it clear that he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. So laying out the fleece was never about finding out God's will. If you've been doing that in your prayer closet trying to figure out what to do with your life, stop it that is not what this is about and it's not
1: something that we're supposed to do no not at all we have god's will revealed clearly to us in guess where chris uh that would be the bible exactly we know what god wants us to do he doesn't spell out every detail of our lives and he's not going to but we know what to do and what not to do i'm going to quote professor van pelt here again when it comes to God's will, there's no guesswork, only homework. I love it. I love that too. The will of God in the Bible is crystal clear. Who should I marry? A believer of the opposite gender. <laughs> how should I treat my enemies? Love them. End quote. Exactly. That is exactly right. I, I just love the
0: how. I love that whole quote and how he puts it because it sums it up. Right. And Gideon, like Moses, knew what God wanted him to do. And Gideon's already started to obey God by calling the army together. So then why the fleece?
1: Well, we'll go back to the parallels with Moses. God gave Moses two signs, if you remember. The sign of a staff when he threw it down and it turned into a snake. And then it turned back into a staff. And then the sign when he put his hand in his coat and it came out and it was leprous. And then it was fine again. God gave the signs so that Moses could prove to the Israelites that God had called them and that they would follow his lead. And that's what's happening here. Gideon
0: already has the army together, or at least part of it, like you said. Gideon is in public. He's out in the open on the threshing floor. This isn't Gideon off by himself asking for some private sign. It's public. It's for the purpose of proof for the army that God has called Gideon to the task and that God is with them. It's a sign of assurance for all of them. Gideon and all the judges are types of saviors. In other words, their pictures are types of Christ. Moses was too. They were given signs to assure the people with. And Jesus didn't leave us without signs today either. These signs in the Old Testament were pointing us to something greater, as we say all the time, Rose. That's
1: right. Christians can struggle with assurance of their faith, no doubt. But Jesus gave us things to help us with our struggle. First, he gave believers the Holy Spirit who lives inside every believer. He gave us the Bible, his word. He gave us access to praying directly to the Father. And he gave us visible, tangible signs to strengthen our faith. The sacraments of baptism and communion. When we take communion, we physically touch and taste the life-sustaining bread and wine. It's not actually the body and blood of Jesus. It's a symbol but we physically can touch it and taste it. But the Christian is also spiritually strengthened by the reminder of Christ's death in their place. Likewise with baptism, whether it's our own or other people's baptisms, it's a sign that's spiritually strengthening as we remember that we were washed by Jesus's blood, that we were once dead, but now we've been raised to life, born again with a new nature. Exactly, exactly, Rose.
0: So moving on, there's a lot we aren't going to get covered here in Gideon's story. So if you're listening, we encourage you to read it for yourself because this book is uh, really surprising in some ways. It has some crazy stuff in it. God does do some strange things in some strange ways
1: sometimes, right? Absolutely. This book is paramount to that. (laughs) It is. Most of chapter 7 is about God whittling down Gideon's army to only 300 men and this tiny army defeating the Midianites. No one had any doubt that it was God who defeated the enemy. There couldn't have been any other way. And that was his intent of going to battle with only 300 men. But right before this battle, God knows Gideon's afraid and he gives Gideon one more sign that the battle will be won. So Chris, what should we notice about this sign? Is this one telling us that we can lay out a fleece as confirmation?
0: Absolutely not. We can't lay out a fleece as confirmation. Of our decisions. Let's read about it in Judges 7, 9 to 15. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dream a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. So let's talk about this a little bit. Notice first, Gideon never asked God for the sign. The Lord knows his heart. He knows he's a little bit afraid and he gives him the sign. Does that mean that we should always be looking for the Lord to give us signs as confirmation of our decisions when we're not sure, not in any way, shape, or form? I think we get an important bit of information about this in the words that I just read. This is no other than the sword of Gideon. What is this sword of Gideon? Neither Gideon nor any of his men carried a
1: sword in his hand. So what is it, Rose? No, they didn't carry a sword. According to verse 16, Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all the men and emptied jars with torches in their other hand. No room for a sword. So let's read about what's going on here, starting in verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets they blew. They cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerarah, and as far as the border of Abel-Melhalah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh and they pursued after Midian. Yeah. So
0: we said this in part one of the series, but it bears repeating. The weapon of our warfare is the word of God. When it says the swords were set against their comrades, it means... Those armies fought against each other, not Gideon fighting against the armies. The armies fought against each other. Let me explain when I say our warfare is the word of God. We don't rebuke Satan or his demons with it. Jesus did that, but there's no precedent set for people to do that anywhere. In fact, the precedent is set for us leaving rebuking of Satan and the demons for God to do. That precedence is set by Jude 9 and the archangel Michael who wouldn't even rebuke a demon himself. He said, let the Lord do it. And if you're looking for a sign, you don't throw open the Bible and look for some words in the passage that it happened to open to for confirmation of your decision either. The Christian's job is to get to know the word of God so that... We know God and we get to know his attributes and we get a solid understanding that he's unchangeable and that we can trust him. And knowing all this stuff about God and more from reading and studying the Bible will allow us to stand firm. That's our job or one of them. Our job is to stand firm against the temptation to sin and against caving to pressure that results in ungodliness. It's almost like the doctrine of election, Rose. I was thinking this the other day. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see what the believer's told to do over and over again, it's just there all the time. Absolutely. And that really hit home when we were doing the Revelation podcast. Right. So learn your Bible and learn what's in it and do what Dr. Van Pelt said earlier. You know, if you want to get married, it's not going to tell you who to marry, but it tells you who to marry. Do your homework. Do your homework, exactly. So moving on, God gives Gideon this victory, but the book of Judges shows us Israel spiral downward and we start to see that pretty much right away. Gideon has a small run-in with the tribe of Ephraim in chapter eight. There's some struggle between the 12 tribes starting here and it gets worse.
1: Yeah, right after the run-in with Ephraim, Gideon's tired and hungry army who were still in pursuit of the Midianites cross over to the east side of the Jordan River And they come to two towns, Succoth and Penuel, located in the territory of the tribe of Dan. Gideon and his men had every right to expect help. Instead, both cities deny his request for food for the army. The leaders of the town know that if the Midianites were not defeated, they'll come back and attack anyone who helped Gideon. However, by refusing to help Gideon and his men, they themselves are now considered the enemy per God's rule of holy war. Being considered the same as the enemy meant death. And Gideon does kill some of them. And when you read future in the Bible, the tribe of Dan is just about obliterated. That's exactly right.
0: Gideon is a judge, a type of savior, as we've said before, raised up by God to defeat Israel's enemies. But he's not the perfect savior, Jesus. And eventually Gideon starts to spiral downward too. When he finally overtakes the two Midianite kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, Judges 8.21 tells us Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent
1: ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Now, he's got a problem coming. He does. He's starting to be enamored by something other than God. Shiny things. Yep. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah had a warning about this, and he mentions these very trinkets. Isaiah says in the day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescent necklaces, earrings, bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veil. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness, ooh. <laughs> and, it's, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, branding instead of beauty. That's pretty sobering. I was just going to say those exact words, pretty sobering.
0: So that's how far the Israelites spiraled down to eventually. But Gideon's been successful so far in this story and people like having a successful leader. In verse 22, we're told, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, and you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. The Israelites forgot that it was God who won the battle. They offer Gideon not just a kingship. By including his son and his grandson, they've offered him a dynasty. Reject God as king, make man as king. Gideon refuses and reminds them that God is their king. Now, that sounds really good, except that he turns right around and requests gold from the plunder. In holy war, plunder is devoted to God and burned unless God says otherwise. Gideon's desire for gold shows that he speaks the right words out of his mouth, but his heart desired the pleasures of kingship.
1: And before we're too hard on Gideon, we're not immune to this today. Look how many Christian people are waiting for God to give them their breakthrough or their promotion. There's even sermons preached about this in some so-called quote-unquote churches like Elevation Church or Creflo Dollar's Church, and there's books written by supposed Christians on the steps to achieving earthly success they say are based on God's word by people like Gloria Copeland or Paula White. But these people are distorting God's word. The Bible shouldn't be treated like a how-to manual for earthly success. God's not a genie. These people speak the words of God, but their hearts are far from them. Earthly success for our own glory is not what we're supposed to be after. We're to show God's glory. Absolutely. And those people you mentioned, that that's so
0: true. And people flock to that. Who doesn't want earthly success? Who doesn't? I know. Well, Gideon's next move is to make an ephod. An ephod is usually a priestly garment. However, here and in other passages, it denotes something that's more associated with an idol, like for idol worship or something like that, possibly like the golden calf. Gideon takes his idol back to Ophrah. That's the place where he, you know, not only met with the Lord, but at which he tore down his father's idols and built the altar to the Lord and worshipped there. And now it's not only his family and the men of the town worshiping falsely there, The national idol worship is happening there and it's happening before the judge Gideon is even dead. So these people are starting to sin before the judge is even dead and he's doing it too. This God appointed chosen by God leader was supposed to be their leader and their role model for proper worship and obedience.
1: Yeah. And even though the idol worship has already started again, the Lord gives them peace for 40 years. Gideon is living the life of a king. He establishes a harem and is given a son by his most prominent concubine, which we're going to talk about in the next episode. Right.
0: Then Gideon dies, and before long the Israelites start worshiping Baal on top of the other stuff. They did not remember the Lord or what he had done for them, and they also failed to show kindness to Gideon's family. Even though Gideon had many, many flaws and took a big spiral downward, it doesn't mean that he didn't do any good, and he is listed in Hebrews as a man of faith.
1: Yeah, well, so is Samson, who we're going to get to in a few weeks. How ironic is it that at one point in Gideon's story, God's people see Baal not being able to defend himself against Gideon, a man. And yet at the end of the story, they're right. putting their hope and trust for ba- in Baal as Lord. Even with proof that Baal was unable to stand to a, up to a human, they'd still rather worship him. Ugh. Yeah, it's, it seems crazy, but in some ways we do that.
0: Um, but it's not okay. The people wanted to make Gideon their king. They're already rejecting God as king, and they want instead to have an earthly king. Why? If you read on past the book of Judges, you'll find out. In 1 Samuel 1 5, it says it's because they wanted to be like the other nations.
1: And we know how that turned out for them. I'll end us today with Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Chris, we said last episode, there's certain passages you need to memorize. That is one of them. I agree with that.
0: Amen to that. When you get a chance, read the rest of the account of Gideon for yourself. Thanks for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for release information and the cover reveal of our new book, The Bible Blueprint, a guide to better understanding the Bible from Genesis to Revelation.
1: And if you like what you hear on our podcast, please subscribe to our Proverbs 910 ministry channel on Rumble or YouTube. You can also subscribe to the audio podcast on whatever platform you listen on, so you'll never miss an episode.
0: And we would greatly appreciate your rating and reviewing us on whatever platform you're tuning in on. And consider following us on MeWe, Facebook, or Instagram to get all the latest happenings of Proverbs 9:10 ministries, including daily posts, book news, Bible studies, speaking engagements, and more. Have a blessed day, everyone.